turn with me in your Bibles or whatever electronic device you might be using to Matthew 6. And I want to read verses 25 to 34. As I told you last week, I taught through this passage in my Sunday school class a few months ago. So the people in my class have already studied this passage. And for those of you who were in the class on fear, anxiety, and worry, this passage may be fresh in your minds too. But these truths are so important that all of us need to understand them and to be continually reminded of them. I think we can all benefit from what Jesus has to teach us here. So let's read beginning in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now in the verses just before this, verses 19 to 24, Jesus had focused his instruction on our attitude towards luxury, towards wealth, that is the money and unnecessary physical possessions people store and stockpile for selfish reasons. But in these verses, he now focuses on our attitude towards what we eat, drink, and wear, the necessities of life that we absolutely must have in order to exist. The first passage is particularly directed at the rich, and the second is particularly directed at the poor. Both being rich and poor have their own special spiritual problems. Those who are rich are tempted to trust in their possessions, and those who are poor are tempted to doubt God's provision. Uh, the rich are tempted to become self-satisfied in the false security of their riches, and the poor are tempted to worry and fear in the false insecurity of their poverty. But you see, whether you are wealthy or poor or somewhere in between, your attitude towards material possessions is one of the most reliable marks of your spiritual condition. Man, as an earthly creature, is naturally concerned about earthly things. In Christ, we are recreated as heavenly beings, and as children of our Heavenly Father, our concern ought to focus primarily on heavenly things, even while we're still on earth. Christ sends us into the world to do His work, just as the Father sent Him into the world to do the Father's work. But as Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, we are not to be of the world, just as Jesus, while on earth, was not of the world. 
So then one of the supreme tests of our spiritual lives is how we relate to those two worlds. The, specifically the issue of our money and finances. Do you realize that 16 of Jesus' 38 parables that are recorded in Scripture deal with money? One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. Scripture contains about 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but over 2,000 on money. So the believer's attitude towards money and possessions is a determinative factor in terms of his or her spiritual health. Unfortunately, most modern evangelicals follow the world's attitude toward finances and wealth rather than those that are taught in Scripture. And consequently, it's difficult for most of us to identify with Jesus' warnings not to worry about basic necessities. We are well-fed, well-clothed, and well-fixed in terms of all the necessities, as well as in many things that are totally unnecessary. Now, as I read these verses, what was the phrase that Jesus repeated over and over again? Do not worry. It appears three times, verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34. And in verses 27 and 28, he asks questions built around the issue of us being worried. So that is the heart and soul of the passage. The Lord is calling for us to cease from worrying. Now, I guess all of us have to admit that worry is a part of life. In fact, it's a pastime for many people. It, it occupies their thinking for a great portion of their daily waking hours. However, worry is a very dangerous item. It takes a severe toll on people. But far beyond its psychological effect is the fact that the Bible tells us that for the believer, worry is a sin. Why? Because worry is the equivalent of saying, God, I know you mean well by what you've promised, but I'm just not sure that you'll really do it. I'm not sure you can pull it off. So worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet we do it all the time. The famous playwright William Ng once said, worry is interest paid on trouble before it's due. But my favorite quote about worry is from Mr. Anonymous, who said, worry is wasting today's time cluttering up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. But if you're going to worry and you're trying to legitimize it, there's no better way to do it than to say, well, I'm not worrying about extravagant things. I'm just worrying about where I'm going to get my next meal or a glass of water and something to wear. But for the Christian, even that is forbidden. For the Christian, that is sinful and foolish. There is no excuse for us to worry even about those basic commodities of life. Why? Because that's God's area. And one of the things you learn if you listen to Jesus all through the Gospels as well as the rest of the New Testament is that God does not want his children preoccupied with the mundane passing things of the world. He wants us to set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. He wants us to store up our treasure in heaven. He wants us to seek first his kingdom. And in order to free us to do that, he says, don't worry about that other stuff. I'll take care of that. 
That is a basic principle of spiritual life, that we are not earthbound people. We are to just give that part to God, and then we are free to live in the heavenly places where our citizenship is. How foolish it is to be worried about material things. But that is precisely what people worry about. Now, in this passage, Jesus could be talking to rich people. Because the same people who have all the luxuries in verses 19 to 24 are often worried about the necessities here in verses 25 to 34. Sometimes rich people worry about necessities and that's why they stockpile their money so that they can have a safety net for the future in case everything falls apart. So rich people can worry about necessities. And obviously so do poor people. But poor people worry about them in a different way. They worry about where to get the necessities they need and they can't do anything specific to relieve that worry. Now you might be tempted to say, well, poor people should worry. How do they know where their next meal is going to come from? How do they know they're going to have breakfast tomorrow morning? How do they know where they're going to have shelter and clothing? But Jesus directly says, You're not to worry about that. That's God's area of concern. Now, as I said, Jesus gives the command, do not worry three times. And thus he gives us three reasons why worrying about the necessities of life is wrong. In verses 25 to 30, he says, worry is being unfaithful to our father. In verses 31 to 33, he says, the worry is uncharacteristic of our faith. And in verse 34, he says, worry is unwise in light of our future. So let's begin with worry is being unfaithful to our Father. Notice that verse 25 begins with the words, for this reason. What reason? Well, that looks back to verse 24 in which Jesus declares that no one can serve two masters. And since the Christian's only master is God, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Remember, he gave us three principles in verses 19 to 24. First, he said earthly treasures are insecure, verses 19 to 21. Second, he said yearning for earthly treasures blinds your spiritual vision, verses 22 and 23. And then third, he said in verse 24, you must make a choice between God and money. So for all of those reasons, you as a believer are not to worry about those kinds of things. You have a single master. You serve God, not money. Therefore, you cannot be preoccupied with the mundane things of this world. In other words, the reason why you should never worry about finances and never worry about the basics of life, such as what you will eat, drink, or wear, is because of who your father is. Remember that. It is unnecessary to worry about material things, even the necessities of life, because of your father. He's saying, have you forgotten who your father is? So he says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, there are a couple of things I want to point out about this opening phrase. Notice those words, do not be worried. In the Greek, they translate a present active imperative verb. So instead of being translated like a command to not do something at some future point in time, it's better to translate it as stop worrying or stop being worried. They were worrying about the necessities of life right then. And Jesus says, stop it. And it carries the idea of continuous action. Stop worrying and continue to stop worrying. 
It's the idea of stopping what is already happening and never starting it again. Worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet it is a sin which Christians commit perhaps more frequently than any other. Second, the word life is a Greek word which is a comprehensive term that encompasses all of a person's being. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. It's, the word is often translated soul because it is that comprehensive in nature. So Jesus is saying that absolutely nothing in any aspect of our lives, external or internal, justifies our being worried when we have the master that we do. Now specifically, what is he referring to? Well, what does he say? What you will eat, that's food. Or what you will drink, that's water or fluids. Nor for your body as to what you will put on, that's clothing. Food, water, and clothing. Don't worry about those things. Now in our society, most of us don't worry about those things. We have a refrigerator and cabinets full of food, a faucet that flows more water than we could ever drink, and a closet full of clothes. But these days, all it takes is a trip down the aisles of your local grocery store, and you can see that there are things missing due to supply chain issues that we're dealing with, and there are people who see that and automatically go into panic mode and start hoarding the peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but if, you're li if you were living in Israel at the time Jesus said this, you might have been far more concerned because there were times when the snow didn't come to the mountains. And when the snow didn't come to the mountains, the streams didn't run, and there went your source of water. Unless you could find a spring-fed well, you were in a pickle. And if there was no rain, there was a drought. If there was a drought, the grass all died and your livestock and herds would have nothing to eat. And there were times when the crops were destroyed by a locust plague and that meant there wasn't any grain to make flour and no fruit to eat. And when there was no flour, there was no bread. And when there was no bread, there was a famine in the land. When there was a famine in the land, there was also no income in the land. When there was no income in the land, you couldn't afford to purchase clothing. So these words that Jesus spoke that day were tremendously powerful given the context of that time. He's telling them, don't ever worry about what you're going to eat. Don't ever worry about what you're going to drink. And don't give a second thought as to what you're going to wear. I imagine the majority of the people who heard him that day, who were just barely getting by on a day-to-day -day basis, totally dependent on unreliable natural resources, must have been completely shocked by that statement. And so certainly that is an indictment for us living in our culture of abundance about those same kinds of things. Kind of gives new meaning to our concerns about supply chain problems, doesn't it? Jesus recognizes that man in his fallen covetousness tends to devote his whole life to caring for the externals. All of us tend to devote our whole lives to our food, our house, our clothes, and those kind of things. But at the end of verse 25, he puts it all into perspective. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, do you think that's all there is to life? Is that all you're going to focus on? You know, frankly, that's the way it is in the world. Most people in our world are totally consumed with the body. Just decorate the body, fix up the body, clothe the body, take care of the body, put it in a nice car, let it live in a nice house, stuff it full of nice food, sit in a nice comfortable chair, 
hang a bunch of jewelry all over it, take it out on the boat, take it on the cruise. That's the way most people live. And I'm not saying that doing and having those things is wrong, but the question is, isn't life more than that? That's what Jesus is saying. Why are you worried about these things? The body isn't the end of all. Life is not contained in this body. Life is contained in the very nature of God. I live not because my body lives, but because God gives my body life. Life is more than the body, more than food, more than clothes. You won't convince people in our society of that, but it's true. So don't worry about any of those things. Why worry about them? I remember when I was a child, I never worried about those things. Why not? But because I trusted that my father would provide what I needed. And my own children, when they were little, they never worried about these things. Why not? Because that was my realm of responsibility, not theirs. And so we too are not to worry about them because our Heavenly Father has assumed the responsibility for providing them for us. You see, worry is the opposite of contentment, which should be the believer's normal and consistent state of mind. Every one of us should be able to agree with the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, not that I speak from want for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. The believer's contentment is found in God. And only in God. He controls and owns and provides everything we possess and will ever need. Let's think about that for a minute. First, our our Father owns everything, including the entire universe. In Psalm 24.1, David proclaimed, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything we now have belongs to the Lord. And everything we will ever have belongs to Him. So why worry about him taking from us that which actually belongs to him? Second, we should be content because our Father controls everything. Again, David gives us the right perspective. In 1 Chronicles 29, 12, he says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Third, believers are to be content because our Father provides everything. As Paul assures us in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now the needs that Jesus mentions here in our text are the most basic. What we eat, what we drink, and what we put on. Those are the things that every person in every age has needed. And because most Western Christians have them in such abundance, we don't often worry about them. However, as we said throughout Bible times, food and water could seldom be taken for granted. Yet Jesus says, do not be worried about those things. Those things are important, but they're not as important as life itself. And to illustrate his point, Jesus shows how unnecessary and foolish it is to worry about three things. Food, life expectancy, and clothing. He begins, first of all, in verse 26 with food. This is great. Jesus is sitting on a hillside there in Galilee looking down over the beautiful north end of the sea 
And I believe as he was speaking to them, some birds probably flew across the sky because his words naturally fit such an occurrence. And because it was a long-standing pattern of Jewish rabbis to use visual illustrations when they taught. So I imagine a flock of birds flew over as Jesus said, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Listen, every bird that lives in this world lives because God gives it life, right? When God gives life to a bird, he doesn't say, all right, bird, I've done my thing. I've given you life. Now you figure out how to keep it. No, it doesn't work that way. Birds do not have powers of self-consciousness or advanced cognitive processes. But God gave birds as well as other animals an innate instinct that gives them the capacity to find what is necessary to live. And that instinct varies from bird to bird and animal to animal in varying degrees in various ways. So God didn't just create life. He created life and then gave those creatures various types of instinct to sustain their lives. Speaking of that truth, Psalm 147.9 tells us, He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He feeds the birds through the process of their own instinct. Now, if God is going to take care of irrational baby birds who cry out to him through their own instinct, isn't God going to take care of his own children? That's what he says at the end of verse 26. Are you not worth much more than they? Now, by the way, this is not an excuse for idleness. He says in Verse 26, they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. That doesn't mean that birds don't have to work to get their food and therefore we don't need to either. Birds don't just sit on the tree limb with their mouth open and God just rains worms into their open mouths. That's not how it works. No, the birds God given instinct tells them where to search for food and they go looking for it. They work for it. They're busy searching around, gobbling up insects and worms, preparing their nests, caring for their young, teaching them to fly, pushing them out of the nest at the right time, migrating with the seasons. They work hard. And so we, like birds, have to work because God has designed that we should earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. And Paul says that if anyone's not willing to work, he's not to eat either. So just like the bird for whom God provides through instinct, so too... God provides for man through his labor. And if God gives you the gift of life, then God will sustain you. So birds have no reason to worry. And if birds have no reason to worry, what are you worrying for? Are you not much better than a bird? Don't you think God will feed you too? And think about this. No bird was ever created in the image of God. Not one. No bird was ever designed to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity. No bird has ever had a place prepared for him in heaven in the Father's house. And if God sustains the life of a bird for whatever period of time he's determined for it to live, don't you think he's going to take care of you too? Think of it this way. Life is a gift from God. If God gives you the greater gift, which is life, don't you think he'll give you the lesser gift, which is the sustaining of that life with food? Of course. So don't worry about that. God has promised to sustain his children with food. You should never worry about whether you'll have food to eat because that's being unfaithful to your heavenly father. He's the one who provides food.
Next, Jesus gives a second illustration. He says in verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, the words Jesus used here have caused a variety of translations in our English Bibles. In the Greek, the sentence literally says, And who of you, by worrying, is able to add to his life one cubit? So some Bible versions read, Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? And other versions say a single hour to his life. So, so let me see if I can clear this up for you. First, let me start at the end of the sentence where, with the word life. It's a word which was used in Greek to mean either height or stature or lifespan or lifetime. The word is used in Luke 19.3 to refer to Zacchaeus being small in stature. But it's also used in Hebrews 11.11 to refer to Sarah being past the time of life to bear children. So you have to look at the context. Now in this passage, Jesus did in fact use the word cubit, which was originally a unit of measure going from the elbow to the tip of the, your finger, a length of about 18 inches. And since a cubit is a length of measure, it might seem natural to choose the meaning of stature. But that doesn't seem appropriate because the average person never considers worrying about adding 18 inches to their height. But lots of people worry about adding time to their life. So it seems more likely that Jesus is using this as an idiomatic expression to refer to adding time to one's lifespan. It's similar to the commonly heard statement in our culture when someone has a birthday and they say, well, I've reached another milestone. Of course, he hasn't actually done that, but what he's doing is using a linear measure as a metaphor for age. In fact, David used a linear measure to refer to his lifespan in Psalm 39.5 where he said, you've made my days as a hand breath. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's using a cubit as a metaphorical device for a short amount of time that one could wish that he could add to his life. And thus what most of the newer Bible versions have done is change the word cubit into hour so that the idea is clearer to the readers. Personally, I think I prefer the New Living Translation's rendering of this as a single moment better. But either's fine. They both express the idea that we cannot add any additional time to our lives by worrying about it. In fact, not only will you not lengthen your life by worrying, you'll probably shorten it. You can worry yourself to death, but not to life. Dr. Charles Mayo, the founder of the famous Mayo Clinic, once wrote these words, Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never seen a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I've known a lot who died of worry. So you can worry yourself to death, but you're never going to worry yourself to life. Yet that's what people do. But when you worry and fret about how long you're going to live, and when you worry about adding time onto your life, you're distrusting God. So what are you worried about? You're going to live the fullness of your life if you're obedient to God. He'll give you all the days that he has ordained for you. The third illustration Jesus gives has to do with clothing. There's some people who live for their clothing. You know anybody like that? For them, the most important place in the world for them is their closet. They live for clothes. And so Jesus says in verse 28, so why are you worried about clothing? Now in our day, it isn't that we don't have anything to wear. 
Rather, we worry about the fact that maybe what we wear really isn't in style at the moment. Well, you don't need to worry about that because if you just hang on to those old clothes for about 20 years, they're going to come back in style and you'll be wearing the latest fashion trend again. But many people live for clothes. They manifest a carnal, selfish, worldly, materialistic care for clothes. It isn't so much that they're afraid they'll have nothing to wear. It's that they're afraid they won't be able to look their best, to show off and feed their pride. Lusting after costly clothes is a sin. It's a sin in our society. Don't make a God out of fashion. That's why in 1 Peter 3, the apostle warns you ladies, you're not to be excessively concerned about your hair, jewelry, and clothing, but rather to let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. It's not that you can't look nice. It's that those things are not to be the priority of your life. A godly character is to be the priority. So Jesus speaks to this issue. And as we saw last week, he was speaking to people, most of whom only had one or two sets of clothing. They were poor and many of them had clothing that was moth-eaten with holes and tears in them. They were hardly better than rags. But look at what he says in verse 28. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. In other words, take a good look at the wild lilies on the side of this hill we're sitting on. Really look at them. Jesus is using the wild lilies as a general term for all of the wildflowers on the hillside, many of which were wild lilies. And the hillsides of Galilee at the right time of year would be covered with the beauty of all those various flowers. And so he says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They neither toil nor do they spin. In other words, they don't work. They don't do anything to make themselves look so nice. They just show forth their innate beauty. And then he says in verse 29, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. You know, if you've ever been to some beautiful flower gardens, it's amazing at the variety and detail you see in the flowers there. They truly do exceed the beauty of all of Solomon's gorgeous roads. In fact, you don't even need to go any further than the front flower beds outside our church building here to see the tremendous glory of beautiful flowers. And how do these wildflowers that God plants grow? Easily, freely, gorgeously, effortlessly. God just puts them there on the face of the earth to beautify it. This is a real indictment of how we spend so much time and effort on our clothing and how we dress. Jesus is saying that no matter what you do to yourself, in terms of clothing, you can't do what God can do with a bunch of wildflowers. So why do you spend so much effort for such a result? And then he makes the point from the lesser to the greater in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? The word furnace is better translated oven. It refers to a dome-like oven made of clay, bricks, and mud that which could be heated by cheap combustibles such as grass. The women would gather dead and dying grass and flowers from the fields and use it to quickly make a fire inside the oven in order to bake bread. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. If God is willing to clothe the grass with such beauty for only a short time and then let it die and be burned up in an oven, don't you think he's going to take care of clothing you your worry just demonstrates a lack of faith in him. 
Don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about how long you live. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. God takes all care of all that. That's his category. A God who lavishes such beauty on a flower that only lasts for a brief few days. Don't you think he will provide the eternal clothing for one who is his, the necessary clothing for one who is his eternal child? Of course he will. Jesus says that worrying about things which we need to survive is sinful and shows a lack of faith. A person who worries about those things may have saving faith, but he doesn't have the faith that relies on God to finish what he's begun. Jesus is saying you believe that God can redeem you, save you from sin, break the shackles of Satan, take you to heaven where he's prepared a place for you and keep you for all eternity and yet you don't trust him to supply your daily needs. How terribly inconsistent. We freely put our eternal destiny in his hands but at times we refuse to believe he'll provide what we need to eat, drink and wear. I've heard Christians say, well, worry isn't such a bad sin. Bad sins are things like murder and rape. Worry doesn't harm anyone else, so it's not bad. That's absolutely wrong. Worry is not a trivial sin. You see, it isn't so much what worry does to you. It's what worry says about God. When you worry, you are in effect saying, God, I know you said in your word that you'll provide for me, but I just don't think I can trust you. So worry strikes a blow at the person and promises of God. Listen to what John MacArthur has to say about this matter, particularly about how serious the sin of worry truly is. Here's what he writes. Worry is not a trivial sin because it strikes a blow both at God's love and at God's integrity. Worry declares our Heavenly Father to be untrustworthy in His Word and His promises. To avow belief in the inerrancy of Scripture and in the next moment to express worry is to speak out of both sides of our mouths. Worry shows that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspectives and understanding rather than by God's Word. Worry is therefore not only debilitating and destructive but maligns and impugns God. That really brings it home, doesn't it? Because why would you go around saying how much you believe the Bible and then worry about whether God's going to fulfill what he says in it? You see, worry means that you're mastered by your circumstances and not the truth of God. Worry misunderstands your position as a child of God. Worry is a devastating sin. Worry is a debilitating, self-indulgent, self-absorbed anxiety that says, God can't care for me and I've got to do this thing myself. That's sin. And that makes God a liar. It ignores his love and demeans his power. Think about it this way. When Christians worry, they're making the trials and their circumstances of their lives a bigger issue than their salvation. They believe that God will save them from eternal hell, but they just can't believe he'll help them in this present world. That simply doesn't make sense. So then, when you worry, it's because you're not trusting your Heavenly Father. And if you don't trust your Heavenly Father, it's because you don't know him well enough. Because if you knew him like you ought to, you'd trust him, right? So you'd better get into the Word of God and find out who he really is and how he has supplied the needs of his people throughout 
all of history, and that'll give you confidence for the future. Folks, this is practical stuff. What the scriptures say and what Jesus says here is not pie in the sky. He will give you food. He will give you clothing. He will determine the length of your life and sustain it. This very tangible stuff. You have no grounds for financial worry if your heart is right. The key is verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The key is that we need to put our heart and our treasure in heaven and God will take care of all the earthly things. But when we are not fresh in the word every day so that, that God is constantly in and on our hearts and minds, then Satan is going to move into the vacuum and plant worry. And then worry pushes the Lord even further from our minds. Well, now let's move on to the second reason Jesus gives here why we're not to worry. The second reason that worry is a sin is because worry is uncharacteristic of our faith. Let's read verses 31 to 33. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What's he saying? He's saying worry is inconsistent with our faith in God because it's uncharacteristic of our faith to act like the lost ungodly people of this world. That's what he means by the use of that term Gentiles in verse 32. That's a term used in scripture to refer to the pagans, the people without God, without Christ. Those are the people who worry about those things and why not? After all, that's all they've got going for them. They live for this world. They live to grasp and grab and possess. They've got to get it all on their own. They don't have a God to supply for them. They don't have a God to promise them anything. They don't have any divine resource available to come to their aid. And so what happens is that they have to do it all on their own because they are on their own. They are ignorant of God's supply and have no claim on it anyway. No heavenly father cares for them so they do have reason to worry. Notice the words eagerly seek and the phrase for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. That carries the idea of emphatically seeking, aggressively seeking, eagerly seeking. They seek it with all their might. They're totally consumed with materialistic gratification. It's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just grab for all the gusto you can because that's all there is. And Jesus' point is that God's children are to operate on a completely opposite perspective from the godless, unregenerate pagans of this world. It's unworthy for us to behave that way. Our faith says God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He's our heavenly father and he knows that we need all these things and God can be trusted. So if I worry about my food or I worry about my physical welfare or I worry about my clothing, that is to have a worldly mind. Paul says, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Those who do not trust in God's goodness and God's promises miss the whole point of being a Christian. They're in the world and they are like the world. But Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world. You see, what Jesus is saying is that sons of the king do not conduct themselves like the devil's beggars. Ask yourself this question. Does my Christian faith affect my view of life? 
Do I always place everything in the context of my faith in God? That is, do I face every trial, every possibility, every reality from God's perspective or from man's perspective? Listen, if God is my heavenly father and he knows what I need, then all I need to know is that he cares. And if he cares, I'm home free. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying. He knows that you have needs. He not only has the knowledge, he has the resources, and then he has the love to provide. So what do you worry about? Nothing. So then look at what we ought to be seeking in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek his kingdom? It means losing ourselves in obedience to the Lord. To seek first God's kingdom is to pour out our lives in the eternal work of our Heavenly Father. And when you get your thoughts focused on divine matters, Jesus says that God will take care of the physical matters. You see, God doesn't want us involved in the physical. He wants to free us up from that. So he says, I'll take care of that. You just get busy with the business of the kingdom. Notice the phrase seek first. The word first translates a word which means first in the line of more than one option. In other words, of all the things you can choose from in life with which to be occupied, of all the priorities of life, this is number one. Of all the things you have to be concerned about, and there are many things in life that we have to take care of, but of all those things, the number one thing is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We have a long list, but number one is his kingdom. That's simply Christ's rule, God's rule, the reign of Christ, the dominion of God. We are to seek that which is eternal. That's what he's saying. We are to be lost in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Don't worry about gaining a bunch of stuff in this life because according to scripture, if you're a follower of a Christ, you are a joint heir with him and one day you're going to reign with him forever and ever. So why worry about piling up stuff in this world? Because one day you're going to get it all for nothing. We will have a new heaven and a new earth throughout all of eternity. We'll have all the majesty and riches of eternal heaven. So why waste all your time stockpiling stuff down here? Second, he says that we not only are to seek his kingdom, but also his righteousness, that is his holiness. If you really want to chase after something, don't chase money, chase holiness. Pursue it. He's talking about practical righteousness here. He's saying that when you pursue, pursue godliness, pursue holiness. What did Peter ask in 2 Peter 3.11? He talked about the destruction of the earth and the heavens as we know them today. And then he asked, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Instead of seeking after the materialistic gain of this world, we are to look at everything around us and realize that it's all going to burn up. So why are we worried about gaining those things? We're to be focused on living holy, godly lives and let our Heavenly Father take care of providing our needs. Let's move on to the third reason why we're not to worry. It's found in verse 34 and it is, worry is unwise in light of our future. Jesus says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
what Jesus is saying is, look, don't worry about the future. The future is going to have its own trouble. Just, just wait till you get to it. It's unwise in light of your future. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now, providing for tomorrow is good, but worrying about tomorrow is sin. Why? Because God is the God of tomorrow, just like he's the God of today, right? And do you remember what it says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you hear that? They're new every morning. Worry is a tremendous force. It will endeavor to defeat you. And first it begins with today. Worry will endeavor to destroy you today. It'll try to get you to see things today that will get you upset and make you anxious. But if it loses out on today, it will just keep shoving you into the future until it finds something there that gets you. There's some people so committed to the sin of worry that when they have nothing in the present to worry about, they just keep looking into the future until they find something. Listen, Jesus says that you've got enough to deal with today. If you spend today worrying about the needs of tomorrow, you're going to lose the joy of today. Many believers lose their joy because of worrying about tomorrow and they miss the joy, the victory that God gave them today. God gives you the resources for each day. So live in the fullness of joy for those resources. Don't push yourself into the future and forfeit the joy of today over some possible tomorrow that may never happen. He says that tomorrow will take care for itself. In other words, let tomorrow be for tomorrow. And he closes by saying each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, Tomorrow's going to have a whole new set of problems and troubles. It's unavoidable. So there's no sense in worrying about them today. God only gives strength for one day at a time. God hasn't given me the grace for tomorrow yet. I won't get that until tomorrow. God gives us his grace for the hour that we need his grace. But if you want to sit now and worry about that, you're going to double your pain without any grace to deal with it. So refuse to worry about tomorrow or the next day or the future because you don't yet have the grace you need to deal with it. Worry will not destroy tomorrow's trials, but it will sabotage your strength. The truth is that God has promised to provide us the strength to bear our troubles when they come. But we don't have the strength to bear worrying about them. If you add today's troubles to tomorrow's troubles, you give yourself an impossible burden. So how do you avoid worrying about tomorrow? Well, first of all, you need to believe God and trust his word. I mean, really trust his word. As a believer, you claim that you do. But how many of us so quickly seem to forget that he said in Philippians 4.19 that he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? It's almost as if we say, yes, God, I know you said that. But unless you meet my needs on my terms, I don't really believe you'll do it. So the first thing to do is believe God and trust his word. And then think about this. When the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, what it means is that he's going to be doing the same thing tomorrow that he was doing yesterday. And so the second thing you need to do is look back at the past 
If you have any questions about his care for you in the future, look at the past. Did he sustain you then? He'll sustain you in the future. With him there is no past, no present, no future. So worry is a forbidden sin. Listen, we're not spiritual orphans. God didn't dump us out in front of the local fire station with our name on a note pinned to our jacket. He loves us. He cares for us. And he has all the resources of eternity in his hand for our disposal. So worry is a sin. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's where perfect peace comes from. And that's the opposite of worry. I suppose Solomon provides for us an excellent illustration. Solomon didn't pray for riches, did he? He didn't pray for fancy clothes. He didn't pray for fancy food. He didn't pray for a long life. Solomon prayed for what? Wisdom. And when he got wisdom, God gave him all the rest. Listen, if you worry, it's a sin. It's being unfaithful to your father. It's uncharacteristic of your faith. And it's unwise in light of your future. Don't worry. Trust him and he will provide for all your needs. But if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you truly do have reason to worry. Not about the day-to-day things of life, but rather because you're living with no eternal hope and you're facing God's eternal judgment. I call you to come to Christ in repentance for your sin and trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you'd like to talk to any of our pastors about doing that, come see me after the service. I'll direct you to one of them. Let's close with prayer. Father, these are hard things for many of us to hear because we're so prone to the sin of worry. We fail to consider your promises to provide what we truly need and we fail to recognize that because you love and care for us, we have nothing to fear. Lord, we ask that your indwelling spirit would prick our conscience whenever we begin to worry and fret and become anxious and that he would drive us back into the truths of your word and that we would rest in them. Father, help us to focus on your truth and not on our feelings. Give us the strength we need to be faithful to our Heavenly Father, to live our lives in accord with what we claim to believe, and to recognize that our eternal future is secure because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for those here today who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. May the Holy Spirit regenerate their hearts and grant them saving faith in Jesus this very day. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.